Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our series of Journal Club in collaboration with Annals of Surgery. I'm Shreya Gupta, and we have the rest of the Behind the Knife team here, Kevin, Dr. Steele, Magna, and Karn Chabra. Today, we are going to be discussing the paper, What Have We Learned from Malpractice Claims Involving the Surgical Management of Benign Biliary Disease? A $128 million question. To discuss this paper, we have the first author, Dr. Gartland, here with us today. She's a resident in general surgery at MGH, a former fellow in patient safety and quality at Harvard Medical School. We also have the co-author of this paper, Dr. Keith Lillabo. For those of you who do not know him, he's the chief of surgery at MGH, editor-in-chief of Annals of Surgery, and one of our first guests of this podcast. We're very happy to have you back, Dr. Lillamo, and welcome, Dr. Gartland. This is Karan Chabra here joining you again. I'll just get us started. Uh, this paper summarizes the largest study to date of malpractice claims around cholecystectomy. They used a database from CRICO, their health system's malpractice insurer, which represents over 30% of U.S. unpaid and malpractice claims. The study itself reviewed 745 claims related to cholecystectomy from this database. They found that about 40% of claims resulted in a payout, and the median payout was $230,000. Almost 90% of procedures were performed for cholecystitis, and 80% were laparoscopic. 15 were converted to open. 18% were associated with the death of a patient, and the most common cause on review of these cases was technical performance rather than errors in diagnosis, management, or medication. Clinical judgment was in second place and was an issue in 60% of cases. And the most complication, technically speaking, in all these claims was a bile duct injury, and that occurred in half of the claims. And it was rarely recognized intraoperatively, and it often required a surgical reconstruction. Bowel perforations made up 13% of complications, and bleeding from other adjacent uh, structures made up 7%. And the presence of a res resident or fellow actually reduced the odds of a payout with an odds ratio of 0.4. So get, to get us started, Dr. Gartland, Dr. Lilomo, uh, what motivated the study on your end? Um, well, I, I, like you said, I had the opportunity to participate in the Harvard Fellowship in Patient Safety and Quality under the mentorship of MGH Chief Quality Officer Elizabeth Mort. And as part of it, I got to join physicians from various disciplines across five of the Harvard teaching hospitals to learn the basics of healthcare policy, process improvement, uh, complete an MPH, and then lead operational initiatives at our respective institutions. By the way, this fellowship is open to physicians from any institution as a plug for anyone who has interest. Um, and as part of the fellowship, I also helped review adverse events both in the Department of Surgery and the institution at large. Seeing some of these cases ultimately become malpractice claims really shed light on the significant emotional, physical, and financial toll that they have on both patients and providers. I mean, for patients, in addition to enduring the harm associated with the event, we know from prior studies that most patients are not actually compensated. And when they are, 50 to 60% of this is spent on legal and administrative fees. For doctors, being involved in a malpractice claim can perpetuate defensive medicine practices, 
And we also know that it's strongly associated with burnout, depression, and suicidal ideation. You know, actually, there was a study published a few days ago by uh, David Studdard and Michelle Mello in the New England Journal of Medicine that found that physicians who were sued even once were more likely to stop practicing medicine altogether. All this is particularly worrisome for surgeons, given that 90% of surgeons over the age of 55 will have been sued at least once during their career. So given this burden and uh, given that cholecystectomy is one of the most commonly performed operations in the United States with high medical malpractice claim rates, uh, we wanted to better understand the nature of these claims with the goal of ultimately mitigating this claim burden for all parties involved and better understanding where to focus quality improvement efforts. Uh, great. Um, so, Dr. Gartland, what was known about uh, surgical malpractice claims prior to this study, and what were the challenges in uh, studying this topic? I think the biggest challenge of any medical malpractice study is that you're really only capturing a fraction of patient harm events. So it can be difficult to make global recommendations. Uh, there are also challenges inherent to many of the big malpractice databases. For instance, most of them uh, lack certain provider data, such as surgeon experience and malpractice claim history. And they also lack patient data, such as comorbidities, which are important variables. Um, but that said, though imperfect, I think there's still a lot we can learn from them. Uh, with regard to prior studies that have examined cholecystectomy malpractice claims in particular, most highlight what we know, which is that although major mor morbidity occurs in less than 5% of cholecystectomies, cholecystectomy and bile duct injuries in particular are associated with high medical malpractice claim rates. However, most prior studies focus on paid claims, even though 70% of all malpractice claims are actually unpaid, uh, meaning like a defense verdict or being dropped, dismissed, or denied. So in our study, we wanted to study the contributing factors and costs of both unpaid and paid claims while assessing factors associated with plaintiff or patient payout, uh, which has not been done before. Did you guys choose cholecystectomy because it's one of the most um, most lawsuits involving general surgeons, or, or how did you choose this specific procedure? Yeah, we, we chose it, one, because it's uh, very common, and then also because uh, a serious complication can, such as bile duct injuries, can lead to long-term disability and reduced survival. And especially with this operation, the unexpected nature of these morbid complications, I think, likely explains the high medical malpractice claim rate um, associated. So uh, one thing that you, as you mentioned, the database is a little bit lacking as far as getting patient comorbidities. And in addition, um, you know, sometimes on pre-op CT, you see that there's more like um, inflammation adhesion. There's just the, the gallbladder doesn't look like a, you know, elective cholecystectomy. Um, and so in doing the study, did you find whether we are capable of integrating these malpractice claims to this patient information? Is that something that we can get to in the future? Or do you think it's just too difficult right now with the way we record our data? 
I think it it should be a goal to get a more nuanced description of the diagnosis. It's clearly the specific diagnosis by a surgeon before proceeding to the operating room is is nuanced and very important. And it would have been valuable to be able to parse this out. Um, but as you said, it's it's a limitation of the database uh, for right now. So Dr. Lillamo, Scott Steele here. So you have some scary statistics out there regarding malpractice claims and its effect on surgeons. As the chair of a major department, how do you go about talking to your staff and when they come to you and say, listen, I was uh, breached with a lawsuit? And uh, how, do you, how do you guide them through, in addition to just not only this issue associated with biliary duct injuries, but in general? Well, Rashri mentioned earlier the devastating effect that this uh, can have on patients, uh, whether there's a lawsuit or not involved. And so uh, this is something that we've become increasingly aware of over the last uh, few years, uh, in part reflected by some of the, the evidence related to burnout among surgeons, but in part by, by just watching and observing what's happened in our, our own department. And for that reason, uh, we've actually adapted what we call a second victim program. Uh, this program is uh, designed to have a, a senior surgeon, uh, not necessarily the most senior surgeon, such as uh, the department chair or division chief, but a senior surgeon colleague uh, meet with uh, the surgeon, whether it be a, a lawsuit that they're just facing or, or a bad uh, complication or even death that occurred in the operating room, sort of talk them about to them about uh, not only what happened and and help them understand that uh, you know this this could and has happened to almost everyone and secondly to uh, you know just to provide the support for them uh, it, we've uh, actually I hate to promote the journal but uh, there's a soon to be published uh, surgical perspectives on this topic uh, an example of a uh, how this intervention took place at our um, uh, at our institution. So we're we think it's working, uh, uh, and uh, I would hope that uh, uh, every hospital has a way that when there's a, a, a bad complication, whether it be by a senior faculty, junior faculty, or a resident, that they reach out to them, and and not just the standard M and M process, which we all know from uh, our own personal experiences can sometimes be intimidating and and even maybe brutal if uh, if the complication uh, involves some sort of a technical or judgment error. Dr. Gartland, coming back to you, um, talking about the limitations of the database, um, could you tell whether a critical view of safety was achieved in these cases, or did that at all seem to be associated with the outcome of the, the, the cases? Uh, unfortunately, uh, this large uh, national database did not have uh, the op reports attached. Uh, there were clinical vignettes for every case that uh, we went through uh, individually and tried to get as much clinical information as possible to um, kind of adjust and make sure that everything was coded correctly. Uh, but we were not able to ascertain whether the critical view of safety was obtained in each case, which would have been uh, really interesting information. One uh, interesting finding from the paper was that most of these cases were acute cholecystitis and that they weren't elective uh, cholecystectomies. And we've all been in those scary situations. So were you surprised by how few cases were converted to open? When, when I reviewed the tables, it looked like only 15% were converted. And do you feel that maybe we should be, be converting to open more often? Should we be performing more subtotal cholecystectomies? Or, or what are the other things that we can do to re reduce the likelihood of a complication and a lawsuit? 
You, you know, I, I think it's difficult to speculate on how conversion to open cholecystectomy or the decision to pursue a subtotal cholecystectomy would have impacted the claim outcomes, uh, especially given that actually many bile duct injuries happen during more routine cases. Uh, but I would love to hear, Dr. Lilimo, your thoughts on this. So, uh, Karen, I, I would just push back just a bit. Uh, we're not totally sure the extent of inflammation on these cases. The pathology reports will read cholecystitis in just about every uh, case. And so it's hard to say exactly what percentage were true acute cholecystitis versus, uh, uh, again, as Rashi said, the more uh, elective cases. Uh, the um, conversion to open, I think, is a reflection on the fact that so few cases where did we actually recognize that the injury took place uh, at the time of the uh, uh, of the procedure, and because of that, uh, you know, the surgeon feels that in most cases they've completed the operation in a in a routine, safe fashion without injury. Uh, and again, that's the problem with uh, uh, sort of the classic uh, bile duct injuries is that it's a perception problem. It's not the situation where the surgeon actually feels that that they've uh, uh, done the wrong thing. They just have, in their mind, misidentified where the uh, the true structures are. There are many tools to uh, avoid injury. In true acute cholecystitis, uh, as you mentioned, conversion to open or even a laparoscopic subtotal cholecystectomy is uh, uh, a very valuable technique that uh, is being taught more and more. Uh, I would like to give a plug for uh, the efforts of, of SAGES and uh, of specifically Mike Brunt uh, at WashU uh, in St. Louis for taking the lead on what he calls the Safe Cholecystectomy uh, Project. And as part of that Safe Cholecystectomy Project, there was a consensus conference held last October in Boston, uh, the day prior to the American College of Surgeons, where a group of experts from uh, all over the world uh, not just academic institutions, but from community practice, representing all the major uh, societies with an interest in, in uh, uh, bile duct injuries and laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And they reviewed a, a number of uh, uh, questions and the literature supporting those uh, uh, thoughts, uh, such as uh, the importance of uh, uh, the critical view of safety, uh, even documenting the critical view of safety with a photograph, uh, they they uh, discussed important topics such as a timeout before the uh, uh, duct is is clipped and divided. Uh, so there there's a lot of progress there, and a, a significant part of this uh, uh, consensus uh, focused on what to do with the tough cholecystectomy. And although there isn't a lot of great high level evidence, uh, the general feeling is conversion and uh, to various bailout techniques such as uh, subtotal cholecystectomy or, or even a cholecystostomy tube is, is certainly advisable than proceeding uh, uh, on and, and putting the patient at risk for uh, uh, further injury. So uh, I think uh, this is being worked on in terms of a publication that we hope to see soon. Uh, it has been uh, uh, distributed through General Surgery News uh, and uh, has received input from, from the surgeons and from the public. And uh, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a solid, although not necessarily high-level evidence, to, to make some recommendations. And, and certainly, subtotal cholecystectomy. Uh, you know, the the 
new techniques for bile duct uh, identification, such as endocyanine green or near-infrared fluorescent cholangiography uh, were discussed. Uh, and and I, I really look forward to seeing this uh, coming out because it, it really is a strong opinion-based uh, uh, paper that uh, I think will, will set a standard for how to manage the routine cholecystectomy as well as the difficult uh, acute cholecystitis. So to either of you, um, I know that you put in your limitations that it lacks the uh, the devil in the details, such as the experience, how far they're off from training, or do they have any specialized training, or have they had multiple-time offenders in terms of being um, cited in a lawsuit? But is there anything that's out there that talks about these type of issues, that if you get further along in your career, you're less apt? I know that when we talk about a lot of these statistics, we always say that surgeons over 50 or over this. And so that's, that's the length of time you think you'd have that. But just about the injuries themselves, is it something that happens early in the career? And then regarding lawsuits, are you more apt if you're sued once to get sued twice? So I guess I would say that um, there is some good news. I, I think for the longest time, about a 10-year period of time uh, from, uh, uh, say, uh, uh, 2000 to 2015 uh, or so, uh, the uh, incidence of bile duct injury that was quoted was in the range of about 0.4 to 0.5 percent. But uh, I, I think what's impressed a lot of us is, is that this incident seems to be going down. And it's been documented by uh, two recent publications that show that the incidence of bile duct injury is uh, lowered from uh, from the 0.4, 0.5% to 0.1 to 0.2%. I think this is a function of a couple things. Uh, number one, the critical view of safety has, has come along in, during this time. I also feel that the uh, 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 teaching of, of laparoscopic cholecystectomy has been uh, uh, better uh, uh, standardized, taught better in, in uh, uh, residency programs. Uh, so, I, I and the concept of uh, the bailout procedures like subtotal cholecystectomy have come along. So it's encouraging to see that these results have gone down. But yet, uh, I, I think it's clear that the more experienced the surgeon is, the more likely they're going to uh, uh, you know, know the tricks and, and things to do to avoid an injury. And, and so experience has to help in any way. I don't know if it actually protects against the lawsuit. Certainly, it makes it difficult to uh, uh, defend a surgeon who's had multiple bile duct injuries uh, because it certainly shows a pattern of, of what you might say is uh, 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 recklessness, I guess, in the procedure. But yet there is, uh, um, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, we don't have a lot of great data on on uh, repeat uh, offenders in this process. Uh, uh, and, and much of what we know is uh, uh, from surveys where people really volunteer how often they have their uh, have had these injuries. Was there any granularity as to if these were performed, like more likely to get sued at a private hospital versus an academic hospital? And then also state level data. Um, you know, for example, I've heard Texas, they have a very low uh, malpractice um, rate because of the way the reimbursement goes. Were you guys able to see anything involving those? Um, unfortunately, the database did not permit for a state-based analysis, um, given that the database included insurance with different liability policy limits and uh, in, involved claims from states with and without statutory caps and um, on damages. The, the actually median indemnity payment had limited applica 
applicability in a case-by-case basis. Um, and it's also difficult to trend the number of cholecystectomies over time, you know, as to say whether a certain uh, tort reform or legislation increased or decreased the number of claims, because in most of these databases, insurers and provider groups are entering and leaving the database at different times. So the information as to the denominator of total claims uh, for these organizations at different time points is rarely available. Uh, so that so that gets tricky, but again, I think that those are all important questions. And uh, the more granular that we're able to make these databases in the future going forward, and I know at least the CRICO database is working on uh, increasing the granularity of uh, their database, I think the more uh, information we'll be able to get uh, regarding some of those questions. So along the lines of uh, backing up to experience, the and I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of the de- uh, the paper since you discuss it, but uh, one interesting finding was that when residents or fellows were involved, that there was less patient payout. And you guys kind of discussed some of the the reasons why, but I thought that was an interesting finding that we could talk about for just for our listeners to hear that discussion as well. Could you tell us why you think that might be? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Residents are often named in claims. It's not always something we hear about during orientation, but it does happen. And in our cohort, both on univariate and multivariable analysis, having a resident or fellow named in a claim was negatively predictive of plaintiff payout. And while this could be attributed to a number of factors, again, including tort law variation by state, I think the main reason we see this is because a fellow or resident involved in a case is a surrogate uh, for being at a teaching or tertiary referral hospital where one, there may be more control of outcomes after complications, and two, uh, there's likely more immediate access to advanced endoscopy, interventional radiology, and specialized surgery. And and these centers are likely handling more advanced cases that are easier to defend and potentially garner a greater forgiveness factor uh, for the attendings and residents involved. Uh, Of note, we did perform a subgroup analysis looking at claims in which a resident or fellow uh, was named, and we saw that there was no increase in these type of claims based on time of the year, and we particularly checked to see if there was a July effect, and, and there was not. I like to think it's just our rapport with the patient uh, smooths these things over, but maybe. Um, so a lot of our focus on reducing malpractice is, has been, you know, having good rapport with your patients, discussing the complication with them upfront immediately and kind of taking um, more or less the blame. Um, in this case, this paper kind of brings up some the technical aspects of, you know, what actually happened and what led to malpractice claims. Um, does this suggest that technical performance is more important than communications? And how do we improve the technical safety of the operation across the surgical profession? And I guess Dr. Lillano kind of addressed the technical safety yeah. part, but more is, is the technical performance uh, more important than communication? You know, I I think uh, Dr. Lillamo discussed some of those things, and and while the focus on the technical aspects of the procedure 
are definitely important. Uh, sometimes even the most technically excellent cases can result in complications, and then those complications can lead to malpractice claims. I think this study actually does highlight the role of improved support of patients and families after adverse events. I think we can all think of a situation in which a patient endured a tough complication, perhaps even a preventable one, yet it was clear that he or she would not sue based on uh, the way the complication was managed postoperatively and based on how the patient and family were cared for surrounding the event. In this study, most of the claims in the cohort were actually dropped or dismissed or settled out of court. Um, and that means that most claims never actually went to court. And even so, for these claims, they were expensive and time consuming, lasting over three years for, you know, the surgeon, the resident or the hospital involved. So this, I think, begs the question, are there opportunities for earlier internal resolution after bad outcomes, given that most claims are ultimately dropped or settled out of court anyway. You know, one of the ways that uh, some institutions have tackled this is through communication resolution programs uh, that guide hospitals and clinicians to proactively discuss unanticipated outcomes with patients while taking quick steps to learn from errors and then compensate patients when uh, substandard care causes harm. Uh, several of these programs, um, including the well-known Michigan model, have reported uh, substantially lower malpractice claims, lower malpractice costs, decreased time to resolution, and overall a greater focus on patient safety improvements after adverse events. They, they really do require institutional infrastructure and buy-in to be able to function in the best interest of both patients and doctors. But I do think that the problem um, with only focusing on more of the traditional tort reforms, such as damages caps or shorter statutes of limitation, attorney fee limits, is that there's not a mu as much of a prioritization on future error pre uh, prevention and uh, patient care, which should really be uh, important components of liability reform. I might weigh in on this a little bit uh, too, uh, Scott, uh, as I think was the topic of my behind the knife done several years ago. Uh, I think I discussed that I, I had <clears throat> have cut a bile duct myself during laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And, and uh, I, I think it probably is more important really in bile duct injuries uh, than really any other major complication that, that communication uh, be honest early and often. Uh, again, the vast majority of these patients expect that they're going to have the operation as an outpatient and go home and, and be back to doing what they do in their normal life within two or three days. Uh, and uh, because of that, uh, it's not only a shock but it, it is is has a huge emotional effect on the patients and and uh, really talking to the patients, helping them understand if if there was indeed something about the operation that that made it more challenging, more difficult, or or uh, led to uh, led to the injury. I think uh, having those conversations up front is very important. I also think uh, uh, being responsive to questions and and needs and and uh, you know keeping them the patients uh, very uh, uh, satisfied with with the care that delivered is, is important. I think uh, uh, the bile duct injury itself is, is basically the start of a process. And if things can be done to control that process and make it as less dramatic, less hurtful, less uh, complicated, uh, then then 
it might otherwise be, it, it diminishes the risk of complications. And that's why I, I've always stressed that if you have a bile duct injury, you should consider making sure, you, whether it's in the operating room at the time it's recognized or after it's recognized uh, when the patient comes in after having been sent home, is to make sure you have a high-quality team, uh, experienced uh, uh group of people taking care of the patient to, to minimize uh, the complications and to, to maximize the, and improve the uh, the outcomes. Along those same lines, there was a paper that came out, I guess a bit ago, that talked about the fact that perhaps when you have a major complication, I thought it was in the biliary literature, but could have been another one, to have somebody else come in at that time, another experienced surgeon to kind of walk, somebody who's not as emotionally invested to be there to kind of with clear eyes, focus to guide through the process. Any thoughts about that? I, I found that very interesting concept because they may not know, they may not know exactly what's going on, but they have the feeling and the experience or hopefully, or the expertise to just be there to support because as you are aware, the next thing that you do oftentimes is your best chance to right the situation. I feel strongly and, and have both written about it and spoke about it uh, that if if you're a surgeon, no matter how much experience you have, and, and you're in a hospital and you run into a complication, particularly a bile duct injury that's as in the process of developing or you're trying to avoid it, getting a, a senior experienced set of hands uh, uh, and eyes in the uh, operating room is, is very important. And, and, you know, sometimes people's ego uh, gets in the way of doing this. But, uh, you know, I, I get called down to the operating room frequently, uh, not just on cholecystectomy patients, but uh, other things, uh, just, to, just to take a look and to uh, uh, reassure and, and advise. And, and I think that's something we should all do at, at any level. And uh, uh, the other side of that is is when you explain to the patient that, uh, uh, say, you did have a bile duct injury and you've chosen to reconstruct it at the same time, you could pass along that I brought in someone who is very experienced at doing this procedure, whether it be a transplant surgeon or a surgical oncologist or an HPB surgeon, to reassure them that, that you are thinking about what's best for them and their outcomes. Out of curiosity, does anyone routinely uh, take pictures of the um, critical view of safety and include them in their op notes? So, um, that's a very uh, important question. Uh, uh, Steve Strasberg, who, in my opinion, has made more contributions to uh, both our understanding of bile duct injuries, uh, the prevention of bile duct injuries with the introduction to the critical view of safety, and the lectures and talks that he has given, has long advocated that, that these the critical view of safety be doc documented with uh, what he calls uh, doublet photography, both anterior and posterior view of it. Uh, and he's published on that in a paper that's in JAXA. Uh, it's my understanding, although uh, I, I can't actually say that I know it as a fact, but certainly people talk about it, and Steve has talked about it, that in the uh, uh, country of, of uh, uh, Holland, that uh, surgeons are, are required to place in their op note a, uh, a picture of the critical view of safety because, frankly, anyone can dictate that they obtain the critical view, critical view of safety. It's a but really, did they? And how uh, complete was it? And how accurate was it? So uh, I do think that uh, documentation is, uh, um, with a photograph, is a safe way to go about it. Uh, it obviously uh, can also be evidence that hurts the surgeon in, in the uh, uh, defense. Because if, if I take a picture and say, well, this is 
this is the critical view of safety, and then someone comes in and says, well, this is not satisfactory in my judgment, then then you have uh, you know you have another issue that can be hotly debated uh, in a courtroom. This has been a fantastic discussion to hear both from a, a research standpoint and also from sort of the department level leader standpoint, how we go about thinking about malpractice claims and surgery. So just want to thank everyone for being here and thank you for um, your time uh, telling us about your exciting research. Until next time, dominate the day.